Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with my co-host, Hattie Dulac. Hi, Hattie. Hi, Kate. Happy to be here, as always. And uh, need to ask, are you reading anything good at the moment? Well, I've just finished reading the latest Anthony Horowitz, The Twist of the Knife, which was such a pleasure. Regular podcast listeners might remember my conversation with the lovely Anthony Horowitz when he talked about this Hawthorne series of books. And I'm, I must say I'm quite relieved because I wasn't such a fan of the third one in the series, but this one was an absolute delight. So great sigh of relief. I'm now really looking forward to the fifth one. And how about you? Reading anything good? Yeah, I'm reading a book called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid, which was a massive, massive international bestseller in 2020. It's a book about a young black woman's relationship with the mother of a child that she babysits. And it really sort of explores the dynamics of privilege in an in interesting way. I think one of the things that made it so popular and so critically acclaimed is the writing style which is very conversational in a way and very colloquial which is nice to read i think kylie reed's been hailed as perhaps a similar figure to sally rooney in that sense that the language is very kind of fluid some of the themes you're talking about slightly reminding me of little fires everywhere by uh, celeste mm, which is a book we talked about a while ago and thank you to our supporter BorrowBox, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. Now, today's episode of Love Your Library brings you an interview with Ali Hazelwood. Now, what a character Ali was. She was such a lovely person to chat to. In fact, it took us a while to get to the interview because she was busy checking to see that I was coping with the sad news about the Queen. And then we were talking about the corgis. And then we were talking about her mother's risotto. And so it took us ages to get down to, to talking about the book. But she's a fascinating character because, well, her pen name is Ali Hazelwood. She is obviously Italian originally. And she's actually a neuroscientist. And she was, until very recently, a professor of neuroscience. And the people that she works with in the laboratory had no idea that she had this alter ego as a romantic comedy writer. And so I kind of thought she was a bit like the, uh, the Eleanor Ferranti of, the, of neuroscience with the secret life of a, of a writer. But she's now become so successful that she's actually put her neuroscience to, to one side, as you'll hear about when she chats. That sounds so interesting. I think it's amazing how someone can use both sides of their brain. And maybe Ali would be the best person to talk to about exactly how that happens. <laughs> You're quite right. Anyway, yes, you'll, we'll be hearing her, my interview with her in a little while. And then later on, we'll be talking to Lily, who works across a range of our libraries, about her recommended read, Margaret Atwood's The Heart Goes Last. Many of our listeners will, of course, know Margaret Atwood from her infamous feminist dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. But in our chat with Lily, we're talking about a few of Atwood's other works and also titles she's inspired. With a back catalogue of bestsellers, it's amazing she's been able to stay relevant to audiences across the decades she's been writing. It's no surprise then that she's the pick for Hampshire Library's Author of the Month for September. And you can head over to our blog to find out more about our Author of the Month collections. And of course, as always, check our show notes for all the books that we mention in today's episode. But before we get talking to Lily, 
Here's our interview with the wonderful Ali Hazelwood. Before we play this interview, uh, unfortunately, we did have a few technical issues and the sound quality isn't the greatest. So many apologies for this dodgy soundtrack. But we didn't want you to miss out on a really great chat with a wonderful author. But just wanted to say we were sorry that uh, it might be a bit hard to hear some of Ali's responses. So thank you, Ali, so much for joining me to talk about your lovely new book, Love on the Brain. So can I start by asking you to tell us a bit more about it? Of course. Uh, Love on the Brain is the story of a neuroscientist who um, is selected to lead a very important project at NASA that has to do with building these really cool helmets for astronauts. And she is originally over the moon because um, her career has been like hitting a rough patch and she's been stalling. So she's like, okay, this is where I come in and I fix everything and my life is going to be so much better. And then she finds out that the person she's going to have to lead her project with is uh, Levi, who is uh, her grad school arch nemesis. And, you know, the book is, of course, a romance novel. So it's the story of them figuring out their differences, figuring out how to work on this project together. And, uh, of course, uh, um, falling in love. Exactly. So it's one of those classic love stories that we know and love so much where the two people start off seemingly to hate each other. Now, before I read this book, I had heard it described as a steminist rom-com, which did kind of bring a smile to my face before I'd even begun it. Uh, so for those people who might not be as familiar with the term STEM, would you perhaps explain what a STEMinist romantic fiction book might be? So um, I think STEMinist is a sort of like portmanteau, uh, and I don't know who came up with it. I know that like I I remember hearing about it uh, back since back when I was in in grad school, uh, and then like I forgot about it, and then my editor at Berkeley, my US editor Sarah, kind of reminded me of uh, uh of the term and uh, she's been using it for marketing and i love it so <laughs> stem stands for science technology engineering and math and it's basically it, actually i have to say that the the term has been evolving um i think a lot of people uh say steam now i don't even know what the a stands for but like just to be, to be more inclusive of a, a bunch of like other disciplines and um, which makes total sense, but the idea of feminist is basically the way I see it, and I hope I am correct, is um, everything that regards women in STEM fields that are usually male-dominated. And yeah, I, I, I like this term. I, I think it's cute, and it's kind of easy to, <laughs> um, to understand what the book is about, just like from the term. And your background, like the book's main character, B is a neuroscientist and I'm slightly in awe of the fact that you're actually a professor of neuroscience. Am I right in saying that? Uh, I, I was until a couple of weeks ago. I actually am taking a year off to oh, wow. do some writing. Um, but yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that, I just find that so amazing. That's just wonderful. I understand you've, you see this book as a kind of love letter to neuroscience. So what is it about neuroscience you love so much? Um, I think for me, um, 
the reason why I gravitated, I always gravitated to neuros toward neuroscience is that uh, I always felt, I, I especially was interested in why people are different from each other. Like I, I always felt like, and like not to get like too deep or too sad or sappy, but I always felt like there was something weird about me. I remember like <laughs> growing up, I was like, why there are these things that seem so easy to others and are so hard to me? Why there are these things that like I just cannot seem to do? Why am I different from you know my friends? Why am I different from other people in my family? And I think that's why I decided to gravitate toward neuroscience. I just wanted to know more about individual differences. And neuroscience is a very interesting way to explain it. Not that we are what our brain is. Like there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of studies, uh, a lot of literature that actually you know looks at. Uh, how genetics and um, epigenetics and you know the the, the collaboration between uh, nature and nurture actually shape who we are. But the brain was just such an, a fascinating organ for me since the very beginning. Um, so uh, that's what I like about neuroscience, like the idea that I can maybe predict someone's behavior, parse a little bit of what someone is, what their choices are going to be based on the structure and function of their brain. Or at least that's, that's what was fascinating to me from uh, just, just like from, a, from an academic point of view. That's why I got into neuroscience. And uh, I think I, I, you know, I talk a little, about, a, a little bit about it in the book. Uh, I kind of gave uh, B, the main character, the same passion for neuroscience, uh, which, which was fun. It was like, it's really fun to like infuse your love for something into something you write. Yeah, no, I get the completely. And that passion comes across. I really love the moment when B's doing these almost like seem to be like magic tricks with the yes. with the astronauts where she's playing around with neuroscience and there she's totally blowing their minds. Is that really something you can do as a neuroscientist? One hundred percent. Yes, yes. <gasps> That's um, amazing. I I was very much like I remember the first time I saw that. I think I was still in. I think it was an undergrad still. And that, that was my reaction. Like, I was literally writing my reaction to the first time that I saw uh, someone, like, interrupt speech. So, basically, the idea is that what you can do is you can use this uh, um, transcranial magnetic stimulation where you are basically sending this, ma this magnetic uh, and, therefore, electric impulse to a person's brain, which I know sounds really invasive and really scary, but it's all very safe. Uh, and uh, you can disrupt the functioning of little parts of the brain. And because you can map certain functions of the brain to uh, certain locations and certain systems, if you disrupt those systems, then people are going to like do things that they don't realize they're doing, or they're going to be unable to do other things. And one is if you stimulate broadcast area which is a uh, part of the system that is important to produce uh, language in the brain then uh, people are going to have a hard time speaking and i, <laughs> I remember being in the lab and uh, this is probably not something that the the irb and uh, um you know the university would want to know so i'm not going to give detail but like me and the other students so we would like do it on each other <laughs> And it was like so much fun. Mm -hmm. Or another way, another thing was like we would make each other's fingers twitch. Like we would 
we would stimulate each other's motor cortex to to force each other to move and that was like so much fun for me and it was such a a tangible proof that our brain is up there doing things all the time i loved it i i it's not the research that I ended up doing myself. I do more like neuroimaging than neurostimulation, but um, it was just it, it was incredibly interesting um, for me, and I thought it was fascinating. So yeah, I, it's it's really nice when people say, "Oh, I like the science in the book," because I'm like. Me too. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. It's such, such a, a such a wonderful mix that you've got all this fascinating science stuff, and yet you can't get away from the fact that it's a very, very funny and incredibly romantic. And perhaps surprisingly for a romantic novel, Marie Curie is a theme that runs through this book because she's such a major role model for B in her work and also in her romantic life. And B has this Twitter feed of uh, what would Marie Curie do? And it's a, a wonderful link to romantic stories like, uh, well, I think you mentioned another film, but I immediately thought of The Shop Around the Corner. And so what gave you that idea for involving Marie Curie in this story in the first place? She's almost like a frame for it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know what's funny? I uh, got the idea from Never Have I Ever, which is this uh, amazing uh i want to say netflix series it's produced by mindy calling and the main character debbie is she is um uh an indian american teenager who <laughs> who is uh, she has some anger issues and uh, because she has some anger issues because of how her personality is she's just some this very impulsive person the framing device for the series is uh, like the narrator for the series is john McEnroe, who is someone i and i don't know anything about tennis but he apparently was this very famous tennis player a, a couple of decades ago who was uh, mostly known for his temper so the idea is that they have this thing in common and uh, Seeing him narrate the, the 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 life story of someone who has nothing really gone with him except for his temper, and seeing the two of them relate so well it was so incredibly funny for me. And I remember being like, "Wouldn't it be funny?" I I, I was watching this the first season of this show. Now we're on season three, and it's getting it's just getting better. Honestly, <laughs> this show is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. The show has given me so much joy. I watched it multiple times, and I remember. As I was writing the book and watching the show, thinking who would be the narrator for B's life? Like, wouldn't it be fun if I was able to do something like that? And that's kind of how <laughs> I kind of start. Like, I remember starting from you know Marie Curie's dress uh, because she got married in her love gown because at the time. You know, she didn't have a lot of money and her husband didn't have a lot of money and she was a very practical person. So she was like, hey, why don't you just buy me a love gown and then uh, I'm, I'm going to get married in it and then I'm going to be able to work in it. Um, and I remember it, it kind of started like that. I remember writing that snippet and then going back and kind of like adding in a bunch of Marie Curie fun facts. I, there is a, a movie with one of my favorite actresses, actually, uh, Rosamund Pike. Um, who who plays, uh, she was Jane in the 2005 uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice, and she she's like, it's a biopic on Marie Curie's life. Uh, um, 
And then, uh, yeah, and then I was uh, reading up on life. Uh, um, so I, even I didn't know very much about Marie Curie before the, before the book, but then I, I really fell in love. Like, she was incredibly resilient, incredibly passionate. She had a, this amazing relationship with other female scientists, with her husband, with her sister. Um, she truly got over a bunch of, like, hurdles. I... We say it's hard to be women in STEM right now, and you know it is. But like her life, like she, the, the passion, the commitment that she had to what she studied, and how far she came, uh, truly speaks uh, to her determination and her brilliance. Uh, so, yeah, I I became myself a Marie Curie standing <laughs> in the process of writing the book. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, quite right. Um, now, so why do you think it is that? academia and more specifically STEM academia, why does it make such a good setting, do you think, for a romantic story? You know, I think it's always fun for me to read about people who are very competent and very good at what they do. And to me, this is true in general. Like I one of the one of my favorite books that I've read recently was On the Hustle by Adriana Herrera. It's not out yet. I read an arc, but like the main character is so competent. Like her job is an interior decorator and what she does is she takes people's favorite books and she decorates their room based on that book, like based on the vibe of the book. And that is a competency that I do not have and like reading about this person, like she really goes into detail about like the type of things that she would choose and the type of furniture and where she gets her inspiration. And reading about someone being good at this thing that I don't know anything about was, I love them mm. so much, like for many reasons, but also because of this amazing competency of this woman. And I think maybe that's why people like to read about women scientists because, you know, it's usually you're celebrating, like you're taking someone who is really passionate, really good at something, and you're showing them in their element, uh, being really good and passionate at something and in the process finding love. Mm. So I think there is a little bit of like wish fulfillment uh, and a little bit of just like competence king, I'm going to say. Yeah, and I think you're right too in that that if you if it gives you an insight into a world that is completely new to you, then it's fascinating. And I guess if yeah. it's if it's a world you already know about, it's lovely to read about it as well. So yeah. I guess it can work both ways. One thing I thought I might mention is that there are quite some racier aspects to this book. I don't know whether that's an expression that yes, that obviously does work in America too. And that must have been that must have been really fun to write. But I also think I think I was looking through one of the reviews and it said, Oh, this is quite good. She said, because I love the racier bit, but if somebody didn't, then they're in kind of a chunk that if you don't want to <laughs> if that's not your thing, you can go, Okay, well I'll just miss out that I know. I was very happy to read it, but you know, it does give people fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think you can easily skip the sex scenes and like, I don't think you would lose the meaning of, of what is happening in the rest of the book. So 
I definitely love writing them, and when I read books, I love reading sex scenes. But I under I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea. So totally. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you talk about, as I mentioned, about this book being like a love letter to neuroscience, but you've also described it as a hate letter to something about that's standardized testing. In particular, is this thing the GRE test that graduates yeah. have to take in North America in order to get into grad schools. Now it's. Uh, it's it's not an issue you go into a huge amount in the book, but it is a really interesting thought that I that I hadn't really thought about because um, of the of how it can cause discrimination in some way. So maybe could you just touch on that a little bit because I did think it was an interesting topic. Of course. So the GRE is, uh, um, you know, the GRE, the SATs, uh, um, I, I personally, as a grad student in, in STEM, uh, what I had to take to start grad school was the GRE, but like there are similar things that the SATs and the um, ACTs, I think, are uh, to enter college. Um, then there are other types, like the MCATs, that's to start medical school, and the LSATs, that's to start law school. So basically, America is uh, hugely dependent on standardized testing. And uh, um, these tests are a couple hundred dollars a pop, and you're going to have to travel to the testing center. You can take them from home. Um, they are usually uh, timed and uh, there are very few accommodations that are available for people that are, you know, neurodivergent or that have issues that might prevent them from, from testing. And um, there are a bunch of ways where you can prepare for the test. And I want to stress that you're preparing for the test. You're not preparing and learning knowledge that is going to help you in grad school or in your life. You are preparing and studying on how to work and take the test successfully. So you're basically learning a bunch of different tricks. There are books that you can take. There are tests that are private tutors and they are very expensive, right? So what is going on basically is that the people who usually succeed at this type of testing are the people who are able to afford the prep material and uh, you know the, the the prep process that usually comes up uh, um, before the test or they are the people who are able to take the test over and over again until they have the highest scores it really becomes like so many other things in life uh one of those um People who have more money are going to do better just just because they have more opportunities. Um, there have been several studies that have found that you know your financial situation, your access access to resources are very high predictors of your score in um, in this test. And what is most interesting to me is that. There have been several tests that have shown, several studies that have shown that there is no real predictive values and that these tests are not really uh, telling us who is really going to do better in grad school because the type of skills that you need to go through grad school are not really the type of skills that are measured by these tests. So. There has been a movement that has been growing more and more uh, that is, is trying to kind of like abandon uh, these, uh, these tests uh, because they are seen as like instruments of gatekeeping that are making academia even less diverse than it already is. And it's already a predominantly white, uh, often predominantly male um, environment. 
Um, I, I myself was a professor uh, while I was writing the book, and I could see how many people within my department hated the GRE, but then at the same time, the university was pushing for, after, for us to use it, or it would be very hard to stop using it. We actually stopped using it last year. Um, that was one of the good, thing, uh, of, good things of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The pandemic really helped, like, kind of a bunch of with a bunch of changes just because it became so logistically hard for people to get to the testing center or you know make testing appointments so people were like you know what mm. we're, we're just gonna stop asking for the test which was great yeah that's uh, that's something that i am very passionate yeah. about i could li- I, I, I could literally like it's my soapbox <laughs> topic <laughs> so it was really just nice to be able to include it you know, yeah. in the book and say how much i hate it yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. to, to be able to have that thread as a storyline within this book is just and and to, for it to fit perfectly in a in a rom com is just wonderful. So yeah, I salute you for doing that. Um, now this, I believe, this is the, like your second full length book after your first book, The Love Hypothesis, was such a massive success. So what is it you think that readers connected with in such a big way with that book? What can you give a reason for why it? hit the right notes at the right time. You know, I wish I knew uh, <laughs> because then I could replicate it, but I really don't. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I think a part of it was that it was a book that that was like just a happy ending type of book that came out at a moment where a lot of people were looking for happy endings type of things because, uh, you know, it's been a tough couple of years. I think maybe that's it. <laughs> a lot of it is really just, uh, and I, I, I promise I'm not trying to like be false modest or like to like minimize the books. I, I think it's a good book. I like it. I wrote <laughs> it. But I also think that so much of it is just really chance. Like I was lucky that my book was picked up by, by the book of the month editors uh, that they decided it, here in the US, it's this like big uh, uh, subscription monthly subscription box kind of so a lot of people got their hands on the book before it even came mm-hmm. out and uh, um, a lot of the people who got it were uh, tiktok influencers who they liked romance it was the romance option in uh, in that week and so they like romance they read the book they talked about the book on tiktok other people liked it so Sometimes you just really get lucky mm. and people talk about your book uh, to the right people and the word of mouth uh, kind of starts. So mm. I, I don't know that there is, uh, on the one hand, I, I I want to say, oh yeah, it's because it was the perfect book for the perfect <laughs> time. But on the other hand, I really think that sometimes it's just a matter of, of coincidence. There are so many amazing books uh, out there that I, I think could have connected so much with the audiences, but maybe the audiences didn't even know that they were there at the same time. And I know it because I have a lot of people that I debuted with who were, um, you know, they were, they were with me, uh, with the whole publication journey. And then like, maybe their books didn't get as much attention. And, you know, there is a lot of luck that is just part of the publishing process. It's something we can't really can't control. It is amazing how much TikTok uh, does have uh, an influence of in, in yeah. books now. It's extraordinary. But yeah, you had quite an unusual route to get to be published in the first place because you weren't necessarily trying to be a published author. So yeah. can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I was really intrigued by that story. 
Yeah, I was really lucky and really privileged, actually. I was writing fanfiction, and my agent came across my fanfiction, and she had been looking for, like, my agent was predominantly a young adult uh, agent, but she had been trying to, like, do more romance, but, like, she knew what she was looking for, and... Uh, she also kind of happened to like uh, the same uh, Star Wars fanfiction that I wrote. So it was like a very coincidental slash lucky slash uh, uh, right, right place, right time type of thing. Kind of like, you know, the success of the book. And uh, what happened was that she just read my fanfiction and she was like, she just reached out to me on Twitter. She was like, I'm an agent and if you ever query, if you ever want to rework one of your fanfiction, we can talk about it because we can talk about it because um, I really think that it might be something that uh, I could help you with, and that uh, traditional publishing might be receptive to. So yeah, it was it was again like a lot of luck, a lot of privilege. Um, I also got really lucky. I I really like my agent. Um, I she's the best, honestly. Uh, she is. I, I like her. I like her as an agent. She is a very good partner for me. Like she's someone that I can go to and tell her my ideas, tell her what I feel uncomfortable with, what I like, what I think I'm good at, and that she is incredibly helpful. She's also like, I like her as a person. Like she's amazing as a person, which is, you know, it doesn't hurt to to, to feel like it, it's such a close relationship between agent and and client, and you have to trust someone. And and yeah, my agent's just the best. Mm. So I love her. You know. And so in that first book, they were, you know, you originally started with writing about characters from Star Wars. And so what are you, can I ask finally then, what are you working on now? Right now I am writing my fifth book. <laughs> Publishing is kind of, uh, it, it's really unexpectedly, um, the, the timeline for everything is much different from anything that I had already that I had expected or experienced before in the sense that you have to kind of turn in your book about a year a year and a half before the book comes out I have to say that uh yeah I'm, I'm working on my fourth book I'm on my fifth book and I am hoping to be able to say more soon but I think it's we're at a stage where I'm writing it and my editor hasn't approved it yet so it might be possible that a lot of the uh, all of the stuff that I'm writing right now might change in the future based on a direction. So, yeah, I'm just writing my fifth book. My, <laughs> but my next book to come out is going to be, well, I actually have uh, my three novellas that came out in ebook and uh, um, in audiobook are going to come out as uh, an entire, uh, as an anthology um, in uh, January. I think both in the UK and in the US, I think January 3rd. And then my next uh, full-length book is going to be Love Theoretically, which is the story of uh, a theoretical physicist and an experimental physicist who, of course, each think that their discipline is better and uh, they kind of, they, they are brought together by the fact that she um, applies for a job in the department where he teaches, but uh, something that kind of influences uh, and that plays a big part in the story is the fact that for the past year or so she has been fake dating his brother so 
he knows her as a really different person because she kind of built a whole identity based on what she thought would be the perfect fake girlfriend for his brother. And uh, he finds out that she's a completely different person. <laughs> and uh, um, so it's basically a funny twist on the fake dating trope where she ends up not with the person she's fake dating, but this time she ends up with the brother of the person she's fake dating. So I'm excited for people to read it and mm. I hope they would like it. I really enjoyed speaking with Ali. Uh, she was so such fun and so interesting. You could see that when she got onto the topic of neuroscience, and particularly about this this passion of hers about this uh, this generalized exam that people students have to go through to to study at graduate level, she just gets really overexcited about those topics and uh, can't stop chattering away. So. What, what a fun character and I'm really looking forward to reading more of her books. They were such good fun. Yeah, I was going to say, it's I can't, I can't imagine a Steminist rom-com ever really making it onto my to-read list, but when you hear an author that's so passionate and so exciting, it's how can you not? It's going straight on my straight on my to read list. I'll be looking that up any second. Yeah, definitely. It's such a fun read. And moving on to the second part of this episode, we speak to Lily about life at the libraries that she works at and a few of her recommended reads, of which she really has a, a good spread. So let's get into it. Hi, Lily, and welcome to the Love Your Library podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So you're a library team assistant for Hampshire Libraries. Could you tell us a little bit about your role and where you work? So my main base is Waterlooville, but I actually am an annualised hours library team assistant. So what I do is I travel to about five different branches close to Waterlooville um, and provide cover. So I get to see all lots of different people in all different branches. So it's good fun. So on to our book recommendations. Uh, Lily, would you tell us a little bit about the book you've chosen and why you chose it? So I've chosen The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood. Um, it was the last book that I read, actually, but I really enjoyed it. It was a book that I uh, picked up while I was at work. And initially I put it back because it was on the science fiction shelf, which is not a genre I particularly like or am drawn to often. But I decided by the end of the day to go back, take it home and just give it a go and see what it was like and I actually ended up really enjoying it. So what is the what's the story about? So it's about a couple, Charmaine and Stan, who uh, are living on the fringes of society. There seems to have been some sort of dystopian near future, but it's not made entirely clear. And they're recruited into a program which gives them the opportunity for a, what they think is a better lie. Yeah, it is interesting, the idea of uh, genres like that with, say, with something with a science fiction tag. It's like I would generally think, oh, I'm not into magical books. 
but sometimes the genres can be really misleading and often it is just somewhere to tell a story and uh, having it as a science fiction or something in the future just enables her to sort of talk about different themes that something set in the present day wouldn't allow you to do. So did you did you feel that it was a science fiction? Did it make you more tempted to try other science fiction? It actually has. I would have... It's not science fiction in the sense of aliens and being on a different planet or anything like that, but dystopian feel to it was similar to stuff that I'd read before, but now it sort of made me want to read more science fiction, even if that would be something more mystical or less grounded in reality than that was. Yeah, I, I find that with uh, with both books and films is that often science fiction can really surprise me for just giving me ideas and new ways of looking at our world that you wouldn't have already, that you wouldn't have had before. So is this the first Margaret Atwood book that you've read or have you read others of hers? No, so I um, read The Handmaid's Tale a few years ago. I studied it as part of my A-level and I hadn't read any more after that just because I didn't think that I would have liked her other things looking at the blurbs and things like that no it's definitely made me want to read more and explore her as an author because I think novels provide quite a wide range of perspectives on different issues that can be applied to modern day even if they're set in a near future or a another society I think it's all it's all very real and applicable it's very plausible yeah I mean particularly with Handmaid's Tale which is the one I've read of hers most recently you know that everything that's happening in that book is happening somewhere in this world as we speak so even though she's constructed a world of the future it is still so so much of it you can just relate absolutely to stuff that's going on yeah yeah I think that's almost the the beauty of a um sci-fi or fantasy book because you can just kind of set it anywhere at any time any place guys the limit really it, it means that you can explore those social structures and themes in ways where you don't have to worry about it being realistic or or plausible in a in a kind of you know there might be a dragon there or there might be a talking mm-hmm. you know a, a robot companion or something like that you know you can you can really get creative with with that genre I think as a writer which is amazing so what kind of books and what kind of genres do you like Lily if if sci-fi isn't initially your thing I mean most recently I've been reading a lot of contemporary Japanese fiction I find that quite interesting I think the way that Japanese authors write is a lot different to like a lot of the English and American authors that I've read Um, and just the way that they construct stories they leave a lot more up to the reader. Mainly I read a lot of things to do with social issues of like family, dramas, things like that, but things that are very much grounded in reality or quite plausible. I was going to say, are there more Japanese writers in available now to read um, translated into English? Yeah, there's a quite a big, there's quite a lot actually. And with the way that translation is now and how accessible that is with technology and communicating with people, it's meant that the genres picked up quite a lot over here um, and with English speakers. So that's been quite nice. And it's just been nice to almost explore another culture through Mm. writing and fiction. It definitely expands your worldview, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I was going to say, yet again, it just shows with, with reading how you can just live a million lives through, um, through books. And, uh, and yeah, really interesting what you were saying about how much that Japanese writers maybe let the reader work out more for themselves and use their imaginations in that way. Um, I wonder whether that's linked to their poetry or, or what, how, that, how that's emerged as a particular something that stands out with uh, Japanese writers. I can give you some book recommendations. Yeah, Convenience Store Woman. Uh, that was a really good read. It was really quick as well. Only, I think it was under 200 pages. So if you're just starting out, it's quite easy. And is that one, do you think you could get at the library? Yes, yeah. I've seen a few copies. Excellent. Um, hanging about. So it's, it is very accessible. And I, I think the author actually has a new novel called Earthlings, which I've not read yet, but it had very good reviews. So interesting. I think... There's this kind of cultural, in the, in the entertainment sphere, there's definitely a higher presence of the kind of East Asian, you know, TV shows, films, books. Yeah, like. all of the culture is becoming really, um, I've noticed among sort of young people that I know, they're really being seized by mm. an interest in films and books from places like Japan and, um, and South Korea, particularly being influential nowadays. I think things like Netflix probably make it mm. 10 times easier to access TV shows and films from around the world. And once you've kind of got th those in your, in your mind, you might be thinking as a, as a reader, what stories are out there? What, can, what else can I kind of dip into from yeah. this culture that's just across the entire world? You can access it immediately by a book or by a, by a programme. And I guess if publishers can see that something like the Squid Games, which is a uh, South Korean TV series, can be so popular in the mainstream, then hopefully that'll give them uh, more confidence to start uh, sharing books with us that are from different cultures as well, because I think we are more open to it too. We've been talking about The Heart Goes Last by uh, Margaret Atwood. Hattie, um, what book have you, did you want to talk about today? Well, staying very on theme, I think, I'm going to talk about a book that if you are familiar with Margaret Atwood, you probably are familiar with this book as well. No, it's not The Handmaid's Tale, but it is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, which is The Testaments. So this was a book that came out in 2019, which is, I think, 34 years after it was first, uh, after The Handmaid's Tale was released. So a huge gap, and it's set 15 years after the events that occur in The Handmaid's Tale and kind of, you know, co covers from a different perspective what, what's going on at that time in the fictional land of Gilead. So again, it's kind of that dystopia. I would say there's sci-fi elements of it. And for me, this is a really interesting book because it kind of had so much hype. It was so popular even before it had been released. I think it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize before it had even been released. And it did go on that year to joint win it with Bernadine Evaristo for The Testaments and then Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other One as well. So yeah, it it's also been released right in the middle of the, the kind of hype around the TV show that's come out too, which... I really enjoy as well. That's a really a different take on on the classic story. 
and I think it's quite conscious of it. I think it, it it's definitely a book that knows its place in the 2019 and, and early 2020s kind of landscape. I think it, it's to the point where it brings in elements of the TV show to familiarise readers or viewers, I guess, with it, which I think is quite an interesting way to handle it. Um, and even to the point where Anne Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia in the TV show, is the voice of the Aunt Lydia in this 15 years on look at it too. She And she's a perfect, She's and, and that's on the audiobook version of it, I should say, which is how I um, consumed it on my commute back in the day. But yeah, even though it was a popular book at the time, and I think sometimes as a reader, you might be a bit resistant to that popularity and especially when something's kind of at the height of the kind of storm of popularity around it it's still a really good book it's it's different from the original I've seen a few uh, negative reviews about it saying that it, it lacks the gravitas of the original which if you haven't read The Handmaid's Tale is a pretty harrowing story about futuristic society that uses fertile women's wombs as chattel really and kind of they they keep them almost just for breeding and and they're treated really horribly and it's all to do with a really awful just a terrible view of of how to how to kind of further society by just over you know addressing underpopulation in a in a kind of abusive and controlling way this doesn't quite have the same emphasis on on that element of it I think you know it acknowledges that that side of things has been handled but then it comes in and is a much more action-driven plot it's a bit more of a thriller it definitely goes towards a resolution which is for people who might have felt that The Handmaid's Tale ended without that resolution in place and wanted something a bit more to happen this is definitely a much more exciting book to read I think but yeah and and also I think the seriousness the gravitas is still there it's just there differently you know you've got a shift in perspective the story is told from two different or a few different characters perspectives and and they're different so yeah well it's hard to not spoil it but it's very good I I would definitely recommend that yeah I remember reading it and just feeling it was a real adventure romp you know you were kind of it was a real page turner because you were excited to see what was going to happen next you know on the edge of their seat are they going to make it or not and all this a kind of daring do which I kind of wasn't really expecting and it is much more ramped up in this than than uh, than I'd remembered from The Handmaid's Tale but yeah I really enjoyed it she's such a great writer is is it Lily have you read uh, The Testaments? No I haven't and I'm actually glad that you've said what you've said about it because I was a little bit, I didn't want to spoil The Handmaid's Tale almost, uh, especially like, as you were saying, there was so much media hype and I was a little bit worried that I would be disappointed and, and let down um, after having really enjoyed The Handmaid's Tale for what it was. Mm. So, no, I think that's definitely going to be on my, um, on my to-be-read list. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I did really enjoy it. So yeah, we've uh, we've been talking about another Margaret Atwood book, uh, The Testaments, which came out, it came out, oh, I don't know, four or five 2019. years ago. There you go. Yeah. Well, I am going to pick, uh, I've picked a book that is on theme, but it's not another Margaret Atwood book. It's a book called The Power uh, by Naomi Alderman that came out in 2016. And it actually won the Women's Prize for Fiction that year. Its central premise is that women have developed this 
ability uh, to kind of release electric shocks through their fingers and it gives them this incredible power as the uh, the titles alludes to um, and I've picked it because there's some really close connections with Margaret Atwood particularly with The Handmaid's Tale particularly with the Testaments as well uh, Margaret Atwood acted as a, a kind of mentor for Naomi Alderman for this book and I think she did even suggest plot points but possibly even more than that I think having this mentor relationship you really feel that Naomi, Naomi Alderman is kind of giving um, not a pastiche but sort of honouring the tradition of Margaret Atwood's story so you can see it's the sort of influence shining through so with the structure of the powers it's a book within the book and so it's kind of bookended beginning and end as academics in the future looking at these stories of these women of this extraordinary phenomenon that happened and exploring it as academics and that had echoes with the with the sort of framing or at least some of the ending of Handmaid's Tale um, but I think more specifically it really it's all about exploring the sort of gender the the power imbalance with genders and because everything becomes turned on its head totally with with the power that women get given and but then it's kind of not saying hey first of all you're kind of going yay you know patriarchy overthrown but then you realize you know actually when women have got the power it's just as bad it's just power that is the uh, the negative uh, rather than necessarily within genders I would say it's it's a kind of little bit of a mismatch. I don't know whether either of you have read it and whether you feel the same. A little bit of a mismatch of genres in that, you know, is it political? Is it action? Is it even kind of a, a young adult novel? But in some ways that did remind me of um, of uh, Testament because it it is, you do, a lot of it is, oh, and they're going to do this and this is going to happen and are they going to make it? So it, it does turn into a real action thriller as well. But it's one I did really enjoy reading and does give you um, does give you some thoughts and ideas. As we were saying, a science fiction book can do, uh, taking an idea and seeing what are the what happens, what are the consequences of this happening. So, Hattie, you've been nodding your head. Is the power something that you've read as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think you might have recommended that to me um, quite soon after we first met. Actually, walking around a library. And I have to say, I, I really, really enjoyed that. That was one of the books, uh, just a book that I really did enjoy. I, I completely agree with you in terms of that it's hard to pin it down to a genre. But in, interestingly, it almost gave me a bit um, of a sense of like the Hunger Games kind of essence as well in that kind of action driven. Uh, it's very accessible. So I would say it's it's definitely appropriate for a YA audience. And it is really interesting, I think. You, you have to read it to feel the details of it, obviously, but the idea about power being the corrupting force, very well handled, I think. H have you read it, Lily? No, I haven't, no, but I definitely am going to after this conversation. Um, I think it's quite interesting what you were saying about it being difficult to pin down to a, to a genre, because I think that is similar with a lot of Atwood's work as well, um, and especially with uh, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, and the power where it is a sort of feminist voice in a way, having the political undertones and also having a genre like science fiction or fantasy, it makes it easier to explore. But I think it's just it's just interesting how all of these books, even though they might not be set in our 
day, it's very plausible. Um, and with everything in the news recently, I think it's some great talking points and thinking points as well. Yeah, definitely. We, as Hampshire Libraries, we're part of the Empathy Lab project, which is which is run by Libraries Connected. Every year, Empathy Lab run Empathy Day. And this is a, a reading exercise for children to feel more you know, to, to develop skills of empathy and stuff like that. And I think for me, what a lot of people are turned off by with dystopia in particular is that, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It's really horrible. Everyone's miserable. It's terrible. But I think that for me, it's one of my favorite genres. So I'm so excited that we've been able to talk about it in so much depth that I think that understanding those harrowing things that people go through and absorbing them as a reader makes you feel stronger sense of empathy towards everyone because you can put yourself being able to put yourself in someone's shoes when they're going through something even in a fantasy land or or in a dystopian future it means that you're more sympathetic when horrible things happen in our society and I think that that's the kind of thing that really reading really prepares you for. There's it is interesting that, that there is quite a lot of research that shows how much people will develop empathy skills through reading because as i as i mentioned uh, earlier on through books you live other people's lives in a way you never get to do in real life and that somehow more it is much more immersive than watching a film or or um watching television it's um you you do you do immer- immerse yourself in the story so much more and before we go then lily are there any other books that you'd like to give a special mention to i mean most recently I read Harmony by Carolyn Pankhurst, which is completely different to anything that we've spoken about today. Um, But that was quite an interesting read. It focuses on a family who have a child who has um, an autism diagnosis and navigating that through going to a summer camp and lots of different things happen. It's very action-packed and page-turning and my mouth is on the floor some of the time. It was just absolutely... Yeah, it was an amazing novel. There's no better endorsement than the phrase, my jaw was on the floor. So (laughs) that's going straight on my to-read list. I've just made a little note. Thank you so much, Lily, for your contribution and for those recommendations, which has got us all with our fingers ready to go and look them up on the library catalogue straight away. So thank you so much. And we really enjoyed having you. And I hope you'll join us again. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Um, And hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. That was great. So many writers and so many books that I've never even heard of before. You know, sometimes you actually ask me where I get my recommendations from, Kate. And to be honest, all the research for this podcast and conversations with our library teams is the perfect place to to kind of start digging for those recommendations. It is absolutely true. If you're ever stuck for a book to read, then go into your library and ask the people working there. They just are such a mine of information with brilliant recommendations. And they're really good too. If you say, oh, I like this book and this book, 
They may well know of authors that will be similar and that you, you'll love just as well, but you might not have heard of. Well, lovely to chat with you, Hattie. But that's, uh, that's us for today. And we look forward to, I look forward to seeing you for uh, the next time we get together to talk about books. Thank you very much to lovely Ali and to Lily and our supporters, Borrowbox. And of course, thank you very much for listening. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.